Shane Alexander, welcome to the podcast. Hello, my friends. Good to be here. <laughs> How are you doing? How's California? Man, I have to say, really great. Things are good. Working hard, um, enjoying time with the family, making music that I'm excited about. Sun is shining. Uh, I wouldn't dare complain. Okay, good. Hit me with kind of growing up and how you were introduced to music, what music was inspiring to you, and what ultimately led you to, to pick up a guitar and, and start to start to put all this good mojo to work. Well, those are all, those are big questions. Um, you got time. My, mine is a convoluted tale. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my parents basically uh, sort of uh, met each other and I was conceived pretty much the same day. And, um, and so uh, they were married briefly um, and without going too deeply into all that mess, they separated when I was quite young, uh, you know, maybe two, three. Uh, and then I went and I lived with my uh, paternal grandparents. And um, in my grandparents' house in Pennsylvania um, were amazing records. Um, first, the first thing that comes to mind was there was literally a 45 of Beatles yesterday, like arguably the saddest and prettiest song of all time. I had on a 45, you know, when I was still in single digits. And, uh, and just, I think, you know, my mother had gone. She was not in my life you know, from being an infant. And so that, you know, I think so many singer songwriters have that sort of, uh, you know, abandonment or a need to connect or whatever. And, you know, I think my mom split and a singer songwriter was born. It took a while to manifest, but I think that was part of the equation. But so again, in my grandparents' house, uh, my, and my grandparents were absolutely wonderful people. So I had like real good salt of the earth supportive people there. And, um, so yeah, uh, from there I got into like Simon and Garfunkel and Cat Stevens, and you know uh, I loved sort of m melancholic, beautiful music, and um, uh, very young, before five years old, like I was, I mean, listening to records a lot. And then um, eventually my dad remarried his second wife. He married his second wife when, which came equipped with like the proverbial evil stepbrother. And uh, I had a stepsister too, and so we moved to Maryland. And um, and so yeah, I, I guess I was about five six when we did that move. And um, I would come back and forth between Maryland and my grandparents' house in Pennsylvania. And by the time I was maybe six seven, I got into Kiss. Uh, a couple of the dudes in the neighborhood had Kiss records, which you know were t are tailor made for young boys. You know, mm -hmm. um, Fire and Blood, and and you know my I. I fixated on the the Gibson Les Paul, Ace Frehley's Les Paul. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a, a big come to Jesus, just Kiss in general. You know, again, I had the early food group of nice singer-songwriter music and Beatles and stuff, but predominantly the very young stuff was the more sad stuff. And then I got into, um, you know, when moving to Maryland, my dad actually had an eight-track collection. And so, again, I had, like, these amazing vitamins of... Cat Stevens and Fleetwood Mac and Deep Purple and um, uh, Led Zeppelin and uh, Moody Blues, which is still pretty much my favorite band. Uh, again, very melancholic, the Mellotron, the reverb, 
like that stuff is just in my corpuscles, you know? And so, but when I was about maybe eight or nine, my dad put on Black Sabbath Paranoid on 8-track. And I still, you know, I always say that was like the call to arms moment where like you get the full body chill. Like, you know, I just like, what the hell is that sound? That is everything, you know? So for maybe a year and a half, I nagged and nagged to get my first guitar. I got my first guitar at 10. My amazing grandmother bought me this like electric guitar, an Alamo Fiesta, and my dad got me an amp. And um, yeah, by then uh, I was with my uh, second stepmother, my dad's third wife, and she was great. She was actually a music teacher. She was younger, so she was almost kind of like midway between my, my age and dad's age. Um, uh, again, my parents had me super young. I think my dad was 21, my mother was 19. And so, yeah, so I, I think by the time, yeah, I was 10, yeah, my dad was like 31 and his wife was probably mid-20s or something, you know. Um, so she taught me smoke on the water day one, Christmas, 10th Christmas, you know, and I was just like totally off to the races. And so, you know, in, in school and junior high and high school, you know, I raced BMX, like that was my only other like thing in life, you know, um, was just that and guitars. And so when I'd come home from school, I just, I just play guitars, man. And, uh, uh, luckily also at my grandmother's house. I happened to stumble in and I caught MTV the day it started. I, I saw MTV day one, which again was absolutely essential. And um, so I was glued to MTV from the minute it came on because it was just so diverse. And, and you know, it was a really good thing too for a young sort of, sort of budding metalhead because uh, it was anything goes at that point, you know, from Thompson Twins to Flock of Seagulls to like occasional Iron Maiden video or for those about to rock, you know, and just mm -hmm. like you just waited for the for those about to rock kind of videos, you know, but yeah, it just it was just always it was just always such a huge force. I always say like music is like my wobby, you know, uh, mm -hmm. since I was a child, you know, and uh, and again, if I'm not making music to this day, I'm listening to music, you know, it's just like it's just like the Woobsters and um, and it's it's given me everything, you know, it, it's just it's just been this really amazing thing so it, by the time i was in i guess junior high i did you know i started playing in some bands and then i did like a couple of high school talent shows uh you know i learned the solo for rebel yell which was a big deal nice. um and like some y&t thing and then i went then my dad separated from his third wife um so you know by the summer of 10th grade you know my dad had been, been married three times and he moved home to Pennsylvania. I didn't want to, but like I felt like I had to. So I, between 10th and 11th, I moved back to Pennsylvania. By then I had long hair and a, you know, a guitar and I was pretty down. And so, uh, I mean, down to rock, I should say. And I came to back to Butler, Pennsylvania and in my high school, you know, it was just before 11th grade. And uh, in my high school, there were two other long blonde guitar hero dudes that were not that excited for me to be come into town, you know, mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, by the end of the school year, I'd sort of broken up that duo and my friend Corey and I became dear friends. And so, you know, I was in bands all that year and then he and I had a band by the end of the, uh, of senior year together. Um, and then we went to college together, uh, IUP, which was about maybe an hour drive away. And so we still had a band on our hometown. So he and I would go to school. And again, we just partied like Vikings, listened to records and were with girls. We could give two shits about school, to be frank. Mm -hmm. You know, I think at the end of like the first year, you know, I had like a one point something. He had like a point something. You know, we were just like Vikings with the birds. And the, our, by then we had matching Charvels, 
you know, with uh, <laughs> as you do, yeah, as one does. Yeah. And then, you know, by the grace of God, one day he saw GIT in the back of a guitar magazine. And he said, dude, we should go to Hollywood. And I'm like, I am down with that. <laughs> so it was a big deal because um, uh, all the girls were nervous. My father was coming up to visit. This is, you know, obviously getting towards the end of the first school year of college. And like, we literally went to a bar, me and my dad, and I'm, you know, whatever, 17 or something. And I, I proposed that I leave college and go to music school in Hollywood. And he's like, well, you've got to do something because this isn't working out. It's either this or like military school or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, it, it, I sold it. Like it, somehow he said yes. And so, uh, you know, Corey and I ended up going, you know, like one of the most profound memories of my life is like my college girlfriend who I, I was madly in love with, the first sort of real love of my life. Beautiful, beautiful girl. And, and Corey and his girlfriend were in the front seat and we were driving, I, I think the, like our last trip from school to home with all of our shit and um, going to California, Led Zeppelin came on the radio and he looked at me in the rearview mirror and we have these two girls that we love the shit out of, but we're bailing on, you know, it was like this really loaded moment, you know. And so, you know, we moved out here and, and we went to GIT. And so, you know, we were, you know, 18, 19. And we moved to California, you know, and and it was amazing. And we caught the tail end of the Sunset Strip scene, you know, which was, you know, utopian. <laughs> right, you know, right. so we, we went to school and, and I did great at school. I got I got one B the whole year. You know, um, I was super I was all in. And uh, so I would walk down Hollywood Boulevard every night with my guitar and each uh, classroom had a PA in it and a drum set in it. So you'd find there's a drummer from Peru or whatever. I just like, I, I learned pretty quickly that MI, like you get out of it what you put into it. And so there's the curriculum and you're like home and in the jacuzzi by, you know, one thirty in the afternoon. Um, but then there's more if you want, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that was where I started to like learn the hustle and, uh, you know, playing at school, um, it, it, at MI, they have this thing called LPW, which is a live performance workshop. And they have like a big ass venue in the center of the school, probably a two to 300 seater with seats and a big stage, you know, a couple of house marshals and the kit and the whole thing. And as I recall, I think I did about 56 that year and uh, arguably the scariest crowd of them all because mm -hmm. it was all musicians, drummers, all musicians, like with right, drumsticks right. banging on the back of the chair. Everybody's like waiting for their chance to go on. You know, it was terrifying, you know, um, but I got in with this band, uh, two rock and rollers and this girl singer and and we were really good. And uh, again, it's just like we we had a really high standard. We did songs like we did heavy songs. We did songs by like heart. We did some originals. And um, I don't know, it just it was really nice. And then by the end of that year, of course, you know, we partied like crazy with girls. You know, it was it was madness. Mm. And of course, on the weekend, also, we would go we would go to the strip, you know, and like from from the Doheny and like what used to be called Gazaris, it's changed a million times, but Doheny to to Clark, where the Whiskey A Go Go is, that whole thing was like you'd think the forum just let out like mm. all weekend, hundreds, maybe thousands of rockers and girls, you know, and like the, the, the sidewalk blanketed in flyers, just like mm. you could not see concrete from all the guys flyering the girls. And so anyway, by the end of the school year, Corey got in Lizzie Borden, you know, a metal band. And so he didn't even finish the school year. He toured to Japan and Europe and stuff like that when he was still super duper young, you know, and um, is it just a, it's a one year program or mm -hmm. yep. yeah, yeah. 
And uh, so, but you know, in that same year, you know, again, what was so cool is like we, in our small towns with our skinny jeans and our long blonde hair, we were like unicorns. But at that time in civilization, every town in America had those guys. And we all moved west like the same day, you know. Mm-hmm. So there was like an army of us that descended upon L.A., you know. So we found so many like-minded people, um, you know, just upon landing. You know, we were on Yucca, which is one block off of uh, Hollywood Boulevard. And our entire building was like MI rockers and the girls there to support us. <laughs> and, um, you know, so it was it was a really great time. And I've always thought about writing a, a book about it because, yeah, it's just like I bumped into so many people. And, you know, Lewis Johnson, the famous bass player, lived in our like at the end of my hall. So he would come party with us and he would take his big banana hands and play my buddy's bass. And we would all just scream our heads off. You know, he played bass on Beat It. You know, he's played you know, so many classic records. And, um, and he was just the big old party animal with the 40 ounce and, you know, and so it was just a really, really fun time and we were free and no one was looking. And so we were just kind of figuring out who and what we wanted to be. You know, we all got telemarketing jobs because it was the only job we could get with long hair. And, um, so yeah, we were like literally doing movie surveys and stuff like that to pay the bills. And, um, and then I stumbled into this party in the top story of my building one night um there was this guy um and he was he was like drug dealer to the stars and so he had this apartment that had all kinds of like neon and tchotchkes everywhere but he was like a keyboard god and uh, you know again i'm not even 20 i think at the time he's probably about 30 which made him ancient you know mm-hmm. right but an amazing god musician and just as fate would have it somebody he had this guy that he played with who played a flying v and somebody gave me a flying v his, the guy's guitar and Jim on these keyboards. And again, he was influenced by Pink Floyd and ELP and all these bands. And again, at that time, lead guitar was my only skill, you know, writing songs or singing was the furthest thing from my mind. And so uh, we ended up two strangers, like someone put a guitar on me and like we improvised and like blew this party to pieces. And so he asked me to join his band. And so just as school was finishing, I got into this instrumental band and it, the name was called Trippin, which I always hated, but basically pre fish, you know, it was like Pink Floyd meets Joe Satriani. And I was like the lead singer. And so, but Jim, you know, he had a lot of money. And so we had, you know, roadies and amazing rehearsal space and a Corvette that we cruised around in. And, and we played amazing big shows in Hollywood back when you still could. You know, back then, like a lot of the clubs, like rock clubs, would, you know, have an audience of a thousand people every night. Now those clubs are all have been dance clubs for 20 years. But back then they were actually for live music, you know. And so we were we were exceptionally good um, and we were like a faceless band. We had like this big light show. So it was more like just sort of an experience. And so we had these really provocative, amazing, emotive pieces of music um, that were really, really intricate, but very beautiful and very powerful. And so we had a really good run with that band for, I guess, about a year or so. And like my very first show in LA was like the Roxy and we did obviously the Whiskey and the Troub. And then we moved to like Florentine Gardens and stuff, which were big, big venues. And we played shows with like Mr. Big and Badlands. And these were big bands at the time. And then, Mm -hmm. um, uh, I, uh, I, I got sort of disheartened with it, you know? I mean, again, at that time it was like, you know, drugs and strippers were just like daily life all around you. And I'm like, this is all a little nuts for me. And I wanted to be in a band with, with lyrics and stuff, you know? 
And so uh, Richie Podler, um, who's a famous producer, just passed away maybe, I think, three months ago, um, saw me with Trippin at the Coconut Teaser. We were actually doing a show with Body Counts, and the Coconut Teaser is a really small club on Sunset and uh, Crescent Heights. It's not there anymore either, but, you know, Body Count was Ice Tease Band, right? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, like we had no idea what we were in for. These guys all come in with these satin jackets and flat rim hats and sunglasses, you know, and like we heard, there goes the neighborhood. Dun, 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 dun. It was amaze balls. But we had a really great show and Richie Podler came to see me and like scoped me out. And so he started having me come to his studio and play lead guitar on albums he was producing. And he and his partner, Bill Cooper, uh, had this studio called American in uh, Calabasas. And Rich had become very successful. He produced Born to be Wild. He produced all the Three Dog Night stuff. He produced a lot of real classics. Wow. And so working with those guys, and Rich was a guitar hero too. When he was a like child, he had a career signed to a major and stuff like that, doing like surf music on guitar. Um, he was a really, really eccentric cat. But anyway, so I luckily got to work with him when I was still very young in my really early 20s. And then um, there was a band called Young Art that he was producing, and he had me come in and play some guitar and some of their stuff. Then, uh, you know, long, long story short, you know, I, I got into that band, then eventually started to write songs with and for that band, then eventually usurped the singer and populated it with my own guys and changed the band name to Damone. And so in my late 20s, that was, you know, I think 26, 7 was when I first fronted a band ever. And, and um, would you say that that's around the time that you kind of found your singing voice and, and what was the inspiration to do that? Yeah, well, the, the thing was, you know, again, I was writing songs and our singer, who was actually a really fine singer, but a little dorky, um, this is, you know, I won't mention names. Um, I just felt like you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. That's not the melody you're singing. You know, it's just like, it's not, that's not what I'm hearing, you know, but I didn't have a natural voice. I had a sense of melody, but I didn't know what the hell I was doing with my voice. So. This around was also around the same time I, I became a Buddhist, and I should also interject. Around that same time, I got a day job working for Irving Azoff. So I worked mm. for uh, for Giant Records, which was Irving's label, and um, you know I I worked in that job. And a woman I, I worked with there, she was like the assistant to the head of HR. She was a Buddhist, and she she kept working on me that I should become a Buddhist. And because I was trying to mm. like find myself and sort of step in to my greatness, you know, and she's like, you should chant, you should chant. And so she was really adamant for, for many, many months of me, but maybe even a year before I really started to practice. So, you know, uh, I started taking voice lessons from Gloria Bennett, an, an older woman who was uh, more of sort of opera school, but she had taught like Vince Neil and, and Axel and stuff like that. Mm. And so my band Damone was more of a rock band, you know, again, we were all still coming from like my drummer was totally inspired by Bonham. We both had half stacks, but we were sort of like Led Zeppelin meets U2. We wanted nice big songs, but we also had big soaring musical passages with lead guitar shit. And so, and we did quite well, you know, we did all the clubs locally. We did some West coast stuff and we licensed some music and, um, but you know, I didn't, uh, I, I, I hurt my voice all the time because I'm singing over two half stacks, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that, as much as those guys like to think about those as the salad days, I don't really look back at that with much longing because it was not really the most fun experience for me in terms of performing. And I had to suck on stage before I could get my thing together, you know? And, and, um, and so, you know, by the end of that 
of the century, you know, the band was sort of spiritually on the ropes. And again, the guitar player and I wrote all the songs. I wrote most of them, but he wrote some too. And so, yeah, there was a little bit of like, you know, the, the drummer and the bass player who are still two of my best friends in life. We'd known each other from back home. Those guys came out later. Um, and so there was like that brother thing where we've known each other forever. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I kind of sought to go out on my own. And, and you know, at that same time, uh, I got a phone call uh, from this uh, attorney named Pete Galley, and he represented a band in New York City called Damone. They had our same band name. Mm-hmm. I had named our band Damone after the guy from Fast Times at Ridgemont Hunt. And um, so anyway, they had just signed with RCA and they had our same name. And I hadn't trademarked it or anything, but we had toured and we had licensed music. And so we had some type of implied ownership. And so again, long story short, I dragged them out for about six months and ended up getting $20,000 for a band name that we were done with. You know, they Mm. didn't, they didn't know that, but right. Right. So, so that was like my seed money. We split it four ways, but my five grand, you know, was like my seed money to start my solo career. So I bought like my first pro tools rig, this Demeter preamp that I still have these Genelec monitors that I still have. And, um, and I set to work on my first EP and having been in this loud rock thing, I went completely back to my roots and, and also like Elliot Smith was a thing around then. And, mm-hmm. and I really resonated with him because I thought, you know, we were about the same age and I thought, man, he's, he reminds me of Simon and Garfunkel, you know, like the triple track vocals and that kind of thing and the intimacy of it. And so I, I thought that was really timely. So, you know, my first uh, EP I produced myself four or five songs and I did it at home and it actually sounded really great. And so I started touring, you know, between here and and Seattle by myself. Um, My wife and I, you know, we got married in 2001. So I had a new woman and, you know, uh, so for a few years I started getting my feet wet doing that. And then um, I got a gig with Jewel, um, you know, through my my connections at Azoff, Uh, they put my hat in the ring for a Jewel thing. And uh, she was touring with Jackie Green, and there was some drama or something. And so I, I got a Jackie Green slot, and Jackie Green wasn't there. And and I had a really good show. It was at the Pechanga in in uh, Southern California, a casino showroom. And so I had a really good show, and she really liked me. And we had a great talk. And she said, "I'd love to have you come out on the road with me." And I said, "Mama, I am yours any old time." And so I did uh, a Southern run with her. Uh, and again, that was the first big shows I'd ever done, you know, with my band, we, you know, I'd done a couple things where we like opened on a second stage for like beach boys or something, but nothing, you know, with her, I was doing one to 3000 seats in the dark alone Hmm. and, um, and, you know, making three grand in merch or whatever. And I was like, holy hell, this is, you know, these people don't know me, but they, they're digging it, you know? So Hmm. it very much encouraged me. And so my wife was pregnant, you know, this was the dawning of my space. Um, you know, I was still working for Azoff and again, with that job, you know, I had, you know, I could name drop to the ends of the earth working for Irving, you know, he, his biggest thing was that he's repped the Eagles forever, you know? And so I was with the Eagles for 10 years, you know, uh, I would go to their homes and their rehearsals and knew all those guys. And so mm-hmm. I really had a wonderful sort of window to like top of the food chain music business and what it looks like, you know, and my, there were a couple of takeaways, but one was it didn't look like a lot of fun. Like there was not a levity, a lot of Joe, other than Joe Walsh was like always the icebreaker, you know, but like these guys, you know, armies of guitars, techs everywhere. We'd rent out a soundstage in Culver City for like, you know, half a year to get ready for tour. Then we'd have like a friends and family concert to get ready for tour and stuff. And so I really got to see the nuts and bolts 
of the, I mean, the creme de la creme, you know, and my takeaway was a, I want it to be fun and B you have to have a really high standard, you know? And so, you know, with my wife's blessing, I quit my day job, you know, with our, our with my new daughter, you know, which was madness. Um, and then, you know, our, our friend Jan Janssen over in Holland, um, I connected with him. I got my first record deal in Holland in 2005. Um, and then, you know, uh, that just kind of got the whole party started for me. And then it, that's, and, and then when my second record Stargazer came out, Warner Brothers was biting at the record. Um, but then they came to see me at the Hotel Cafe and Tom Wally made some remark about my banter on stage or something. And I just, I think in that exchange, like a total independent was born. I was just like, fuck that guy. Like, I like my songs. I know my banter was funny. Like, I'll be fine. I'm going to take my songs and go be independent, you know? And around that time, you know, there weren't a lot of friends that were doing that, let alone international or whatever. Um, because again, I had this thing in my back pocket where I, I had just toured with Jewel and I actually made money with original music and I, I was feeling cocky, you know? And so, you know, I, I licensed a lot of music and, and traveled quite a bit. And I did ended up doing two tours with her. And then I went to Canada with Lisa Marie Presley. And I just started to like feel, you know, and it was around this time, maybe like you to answer your question, like 2005, six, you know, almost 10 years after I started singing that I started to feel like I had found my thing, you know, and to where. You know, I think for guys like us, you know, we have three skills on stage. We have the voice, the hands and the banter, you know, and if if your voice is flagging, you can lean on the guitar or, you know, you can tell a funny story or and the good nights are when all three things are showing up, you know, but like I thought, like, finally, all these things felt like they were on a loving level playing field. And I was like, just free to emote and particularly being a solo acoustic act. Like, yeah, man, the set list is completely fluid. Like if I'm feeling it, I'll go low or I'll go high or I'll go fast or I'll go slow. And just like starting to like learn how to read the room and what's what this what this party needs to keep it the plate spinning. So the story goes is sponsored by Santan Brewing Company and Santan Spirits. Uh, for my money, they have some of the best local craft brews and spirits to enjoy. This Labor Day weekend, can you believe it? Check out Santan Brewing Company's extensive variety of craft beers, including lagers, IPAs, amber ales, and much more. Now, you can try them out at the Chandler Brew Pub. You could try them out at Santan Gardens. Heck, I go when I fly out of Sky Harbor, Terminal 3. Come on, there's a little Santan right there. Get my sip on. Uh, Try the Spirit House, or you can find all of this stuff uh, in stores around the valley be sure to try all the amazing creations from santan spirits they just won a bunch of awards at the san francisco spirits competition visit santanbrewing.com to learn more you'll be glad you did then uh uh my third record um i i kind of swung for the fences again i'd been at that point i'd been to holland maybe two times in a little germany and so my third record, The Sky Below, um, I, I spent 25 grand on that record. Um, you know, I spent 15 on the record, but then I spent 10 grand on the mix. You know, hmm. Toby Wright had like, he had done Jar of Flies, like the Alice in Chains hmm. acoustic record. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a couple like number ones. And, you know, that was the last minute where people would spend 10 grand on a mix or whatever. Right. And so anyway, like I made that record, which was my big shiny, 
a little bit more mainstream record and my, my Dutch label promptly dropped me because they said it's too mainstream. <laughs> you know, so I, I had like this unbelievable year of fear and loathing. You know, uh, I've got a family and a baby and what have I done? And, mm. you know, terrifying, terrifying shit, you know. But again, when I made that record, I felt so strongly about those songs. And, um, you know, little by little, like they started to like catch. And then like, uh, you know, my, for my previous record, I had a song called Shipwreck that had done really well, <clears throat> been licensed a bunch. Uh, and then on the Sky Below, my song feels like the end. I, I ended up being licensed like 15 times. And so that record ended up being totally commercially successful for me, you know, and like the fact that I took out a big loan on myself, you know, proved yeah. to be a good thing, but it, you know, not without some scary ass years in the middle. Sure. Know? Sure. Can we, uh, two things. Can we talk about Jar of Flies for a minute? Cause I love that record. I'm a huge Alice in Chains fan. I don't love the acoustic guitar tone. On I that. don't either. That's so funny. It's I don't like, either. Why it, it, these songs would have been? It, it like, almost sounds like an acoustic guitar plugged in through a PA, right? Yeah, it's and like a little like bit black. of like flanger on it. This is something. It's like why? Yeah. Ah, I wish I wish I could go back and. Yeah, that's so funny. That's very true. Yeah, and and I don't even think you know for me, yeah, particularly at that early part of my evolution. It was necessarily so much about Sonics. It was just that it was like, you know, they were a huge band. Right. I was adjacent to that situation. And, and you know, again, the guitar sounds are not like his electric guitar sounds are godly, right? Right. But, right. but yeah, I agree that that record doesn't sound particularly awesome, except for Lane Staley's vocals and the, yeah. the blend. You know, that part right. is super magical. You know, if, if that, that whole record was just Nutshell, it would be the best record ever you know right <laughs> yeah it's it, it, that song is so so moody of my bass player we both worked together at azoff and he was like this is like a career move man you're gonna get him in and blah blah blah, blah. you know mm -hmm. and the thing was i've been on the road i was in germany and you know my producer billy and my mixer dan we had done my stargazer record together and and dan mixed it and that record sounded so good but with 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 this record which was a little bigger a little more mainstreamy i remember i was in germany playing my like rough mixes for a friend and she had a really amazing sound system and i thought this sounds like shit you know, I got to go back. I'm, I, have, I had to have like a really tough conversation with those guys and say, I'm going to go to a different mixer with our done mm. record, you know, mm. and let alone to the wife and saying, you know, we're $10,000, you know, um, again, all those were crazy choices, but like, again, just sort of trusting the gut and the muse. And like, that was the signal I, I was getting from the universe. And, you know, in hindsight, it all panned out, but yeah, mm. you know, to be an independent is, is to, it's a gamble. You know, it's terrifying. Terrifying. 
Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever find yourself like once you had a, a, a taste for placements did you ever find that the, that changed how you wrote like did we know oh this would be great in this scenario or this song or this theme you know you know again in my childlike optimistic uh idealistic i try not to indulge that and which again is stupid it's terrible business i know most people in the modern world that's all they think about is like oh you know they can calculate this this and this equal that so if we do it this tempo this key throw in this word three times mm. we're money you know mm. and again to me that's against every fiber of my being like uh, every success i've had is with a song that i believed in and somehow it found a way and and to me again i'm a complete idealist to a to a fault and like i want i want to the thing to be totally pure i don't want to feel like i'm bending my art for anybody and that's why I've remained autonomous. I've had, you know, four or five deals, but they've all been licensing deals of records I made without them. Mm -hmm. Again, to a fault, I'm sure. But like, it's kept me inspired uh, at this late part in my life. You know, I've had so many friends, you know, early on, so many friends that signed with Atlantic or this or that or the other, they got the big deal and, you know, fucking million dollar advance. And then, you know, of course that trickles down to like 15 grand per band member. And then that was like the last money they ever saw. And then their record didn't come out or then, right. the, you know, the Rupert Hine went away or the A&R guy fell out and those guys all got real jobs, you know? Right. And so that was always the cautionary tale to me. Don't let anybody between me and it, don't let anybody between me and whatever humble fan base I have. If I keep it completely autonomous, I win. You know, even if I'm not a household name, if I'm not rich, I'm free to have lunch with Brian Chartrand on a Tuesday. Right. And a given Tuesday, you know, <laughs> and um, but you know, the, again, the flip side was coming from Irving's, you know, world, you know, again, be shrewd, have a high standard, and I, I we talked about this, I think, on the phone the other day, but yeah, you know, my my friend Vince, who represented me in Holland some years ago, at his behest, he had had me do like a master class, um, you know, on songwriting and music business stuff, and and it was called the Songwriter's Guide to Life, and in that. You know, I, I I boiled, from my experience, I boiled the whole game down to three things. Don't suck, don't quit, and make friends. You know, and that's really how what how I've somehow kept the plate spinning is to, you know, again, and I'm not blessed with like some amazing voice. You know, I just have my voice that I have. I worked hard to have it, but it, I still have trouble calling myself a singer. You know, but it's just like a lot of it. I think a lot of people that are really successful in our business just have like sheer will, you know, like I am going to, I, you know, and, and that I think is a huge part of it. And, and, you know, like you and I both, we've, you know, we've gone out into the unknown with, alone with just our guitar so many times. And when you zoom out, you're like, that's madness. That's madness. Let alone with my, you know, the brood at home. Right. you know and and so you know that i put the family in harm's way a million times in that regard um and early in my career when i started traveling internationally i i like crucified myself i didn't i didn't allow myself to have fun on the road at all because i was giving myself all this hate because i had was away from my family but you know the main that old thing about if you don't live it it doesn't come out your horn is 100% true, I think, you know, and so it's not until you've been on the road for 20 days and you're wet and your voice is a little shaky, your guitar is being a dick, you know, and mm -hmm. it's like, you got to show up tonight. And then like you do, 
and it ends up being magical. Like it's hard earned. Years ago, I was seeing Colin Hay at St. Rock, and we were talking up in his dressing room after the show. And he was and and he was so good and and he's like yeah if something happens you know around the twenty seventh show you know it's like shit in my life I've only made it to the twenty seventh show a few times you know right. it's a long tour but those times that you have it is like a supernatural thing right the body and the songs it just it's just it's just coming out you don't have to think you don't have to do anything it's just like it's there and that is such a free place to be. You get to the end of a tour where you're super lubed up. You're like, oh shit, I gotta go home now. I'm awesome. Right. I'm so good right now. What a waste, you know. <laughs> well, I love that you you get off you get off the road and you're thinking, oh man, I'm, I just I want to go home. I'm gonna sleep in my own bed. I'm gonna cook dinner. I'm gonna throw, you know watch a movie. And you get home and you do all those things. You do your laundry, and then the next day you're like, oh shit. I want to get the hell out of here, like right. immediately, like take yeah. me back. It's, it's, it, you know, I, I used to say it's like this perpetual yearning, you know, like sometimes like, you know, like literally I'll get a car, pick me up, take me to the airport. And like, I'm just leaving my house to head into the unknown for a month or whatever. And it's just like, oh my God, I got to get back, you know? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you get on a plane and there's some like beautiful movie and like, I'm all teary eyed because I'm now seeing the world through these eyes of the poet guy who's away from home, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and it is this beautiful emotional journey. And there's been so many times where I was away and like, I'm on a bus between, you know, an airport to this, so there's no train or whatever. And I'm tired mm -hmm. and I got cash in my pockets and it's madness. And I, I remember thinking to myself, I wouldn't take a million dollars to go back one week, you know, cause I'm, I'm a week from home, you know, just right. like, you know, I always just like ration my energies to come home on that day and but to finish a tour successfully and with your voice intact and your body intact and your spirit intact make your nut financially you know is one of the most gratifying things in the world right you yeah. know it's just like you you have these adventures man you know obviously you and i our very first tour you know we went from zero to war buddies pretty fast <laughs> you know and it, <laughs> that shit's like there's only one way to earn it you know it's just like to do it and, uh, you know, and again, I just did a little run with my dear friend, Chris Pierce and, you know, same thing. He's about my same age and he's had record deals. He's toured with seal as well. He's toured with BB King and Aaron Neville, all kinds of people. And yeah, he's had big years, scary moments, his ass handed to him glorified this, mm -hmm. but you know, for artists that really stay with it, you know, like you know, things can start to happen, you know? And again, if you keep that standard high, maintain those relationships mm -hmm. and continue to grow and evolve, you know, it is really beautiful. And I've been so blessed to have the support of my wife and my daughter. Like, again, I started touring, you know, internationally, like literally three months before my daughter was born, which is mm. ass backwards. Most people like have kids and come in off the road. And I like literally did the opposite, literally. <laughs> um, but uh, Again, the girls never made me feel bad. I, I just did it to myself. Um, but, you know, over the years, there's been times where it was really lean and I want to make a record. And it's just like we look at in the kitty. You can't make a record like we don't have the cheese to make a record, you know. And so had to like Ladera was completely crowdsourced, which, you know, I'm sure you've maybe done that once or twice. But oh, it's yeah. hell. Yeah. Hell. You know, there's nothing worse. Um, but again, it works and anybody that does it, you know, more power to them, but I did not enjoy that experience, but it did pay for the record and that record ended up being a success. But, you know, you just have to always find a way, mm -hmm. you know, and we all are lucky, you know, you find fans or champions that occasionally can come along and be the wind beneath your wings when things get weird. Mm -hmm. 
you know, like there are beautiful patrons out there and just like they're beautiful people that have their own concert series or this or that. And they sort of, they look after people like us. And, and so sometimes, you know, that's, that's all you have is your peers and like your diehards uh, when things get lean and, you know, you have to persevere through those times. And, you know, now that I'm producing more, a lot of the artists that I talk to, you know, in this climate, you know, like, mm. like what's the point comes up a lot. Like who cares? Oh, yeah. You know, and it's just like the only reason to do it is because you love it. Mm-hmm. Like beyond, it's the only reason. Right. <laughs> Everything else makes zero sense. <laughs> you know, it's madness. You know? What what um what was that initial interest in touring in Europe? Like, where did that come from? Because I mean, not everybody does that well or has that as a goal and then is able to execute it. So how did I mean? What was the what was the allure of of that? Well, it's funny because uh, truthfully, yeah, it, it didn't even cross my mind. But I have this friend, Chris Letterzo. Uh, he looks just like Neil Young. And, you know, Neil Young is definitely one of my spirit animals, if not my main one, you know. And so we were doing this in the round thing in the valley the day we met, you know. And so we're all on stage sound checking. Three of There were supposed to be four of us. And next to me is an empty chair. And, you know, we're all like, where's this fourth guy? Where's this fourth guy? And then finally he comes in, you know, dark hair to here you know, baggy jeans and patches. And, you know, he all had a guild guitar. I had a guild guitar and he sat next to me and he opened his mouth and like, I loved his voice and I did a song and he loved my voice. And I just said, you know, and again, in my mind, I'm like, God, this dude just looks like a young, looks like a young Neil Young, you know? And so I just said, dude, let's be friends, you know? And so we became really good buddies, but I was at his house in Venice one day and he was talking about Holland and he said that he'd tour in Holland. He goes, dude, you, you should go. He's like, they'd love you. I'm like, Holland, you know, it was like a, a word I barely even knew. You know, I mean, I, I you know, I, I knew, I knew of it, but like I had no concept of Dutch anything sure. really. Right. Um, and so again, that was around that same time with the MySpace thing. And so as my time with my day job was winding and the other thing uh, that was a big pivotal thing was I did folk Alliance, but I digress. Mm. So, uh, Chris was like, man, you should go to Holland. So when my first record, The Middle Way, came out, you know, back then you would just put your record on like uh, CD Baby or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't even think I hired a publicist for that record. But I did start to see press starting to happen. And so, you know, I, I it was very serendipitous because uh, uh, Chris had mentioned Holland. Then I saw I got a really good write-up in Real Roots Cafe. And so, again, like early dawn of internet life you know i would anytime anybody said any kind words about my shit i would write them a direct email thank you so much for your kind words about my record if you have any ideas for booking or distribution i would be much obliged yada yada and so i reached out to to yawn and and of course i had mentioned you know you know my friend chris Laterzo, he's come over there whatever and so he said yes you know i i love your record and and uh he said you should talk to this label lucky dice and uh, he said they like your record too and so I, I reached out to them and again, it was ultra serendipitous. I reached out to them and they said, oh yeah, we love your record and we're going to be in LA Wednesday. It was like Monday, you know, hmm. I'm like, holy hell. And so I invited them to my house uh, and my wife made dinner and I sang for them and they bought 300 of my records and took them to Holland. Wow. And they said, you know, we want to book your tour. I'm like, oh, can I go tomorrow? You know, they're like easy tiger, <laughs> you know, give us some runway, you know? And so, yeah, uh, that was in 2005. And then November of 2005, 
uh, I went over for my first tour and, you know, there were people sitting up close that knew the words to the last day on earth and just blew my doors. And, 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 and uh, you know, again, that was the first, they lived in demon, which is a suburb of Amsterdam. And so, you know, I flew in, I've told the story a million times. I came in, we went straight to the airport, to their house. Then the next morning we came back to see Amsterdam proper. And it was November, sunny, snappy, beautiful day. Mm. And like, it was my first European city. And it was just like, mm. holy shit, this place is gorgeous. The girls are all pretty. The guys, all their clothes fit so good. You know, I'm like, well, these people are fabulous, you know? And so I just was instantly smitten, you know, I was just instantly smitten. That tour was so lovely. And, and I really felt like I connected with Dutch people, you know, like there, it was funny because, you know, my first couple of shows, the second day I was supposed to do, uh, uh, yeah, I want to say in my mind, it was like a radio show. And then I got there and it was like a live TV show that was also on the radio with like two chunks of bleachers, live studio audience interview in the middle and by the way you have to do like three covers or something which they said like mm. in the car you know this is literally my first jet lag of my life i'm in a you know freaking clown car with my knees up to here and i'm like taking pictures out the window getting myself car sick super nauseous super feeling really funky and this was my first show ever in holland and they're like oh you have to do three <laughs> covers and i'm like oh my god let me get there and there's a camera crew and everything and so i did my first set and i thought oh my god this audience hates me like, you know, you finish a song and they wait like 15 seconds to clap, you know, I'm like, what is happening? You know? Mm -hmm. And then I did an interview and then they had like a little, like 15 minute intermission and they have like all the places over there, they have like a little club, you know, so like a little bar. And so I go, I walk through the crowd there and everybody is so, animated. oh my God, it's so great. It's so great. You know, I'm like, oh, you know, I would have never thought, you know, and so where my were second, you guys, yeah, where, where were you guys, guys yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but they were so great, you know, and, and so I came back my second set, like floating on a cloud, you know, these right. people do like me, you know? And so it, again, it, it's just because they can be, you know, like they can be yeah. polite, you know, it's just right. then we get crazy and just clap too soon. Let's let that pass and everybody think about it for a minute and then we're going to clap. But, you know, so I, I was just, I, I was instantly hooked on the adventure and stuff like that. And so from there, my MO was every time I come over, I wanted to see a new country and I wasn't necessarily like thinking business minded, you know, per my usual so much as life experience and connecting with people and stuff. And so you know, uh, I did. So, you know, uh, over the years now I've done 13 countries, but so I, you know, Holland, Germany, Belgium, Austria, Sweden, Denmark, which we did together, uh, uh, Luxembourg, Switzerland, uh, UK. And, you know, so each time I would tack on another country or two, but to this day, Holland and Germany have been the bread and butter for, mm -hmm. you know, I've been to those both probably 25 times now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just sort of fell into the Europe thing, you know, without necessarily looking for it. Um, but it's, it's, it's really opened up my life in so many ways. You know, I, I just like you, you know, like you make connections with these people and you're like, man, if that person lives in town, I'd see them every week, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and also, you know, like my friend Dennis Colin and Ferry Logendike, you know, my very first tour, I happened to like, you know, befriend some of the greatest musicians in the country. And so, it's a very small country, you know, but having been there for so many years, like I, I know, a, a, I would say a vast majority of like Dutch killers, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I've been able to kind of keep in that scene and have a lot of those amazing guys play on my records. And 
I toured with Niels Hausbrook, who had a number one. I did a couple tours with him and I've written with him and Waylon and Van Velsen. And, you know, like I've been very fortunate. And, and then uh, my second or third deal over there got me with Warner Chapel for Europe. And I've been with them now for 11 years. Hmm. And, um, and so they bring people to me to write with and stuff like that. So, you know, over the years, you just learn it's like diversification and relationships. And again, yeah. still trying to have a, you know, build a better thing with your yeah. music and your statements and things like that. And, and again, the idea of uh, autonomy, you know, to be able to find yourself and express yourself without somebody standing over your shoulder saying, oh, I don't feel that chorus or that lyric or that shirt, mm -hmm. you know, or shave or whatever, you know, just mm -hmm. like I can just do my thing. And so I, I in that regard, I feel like I'm still 13 years old because I'm doing it my way, you know, mm -hmm. and I was saying that to Chris Pierce the other day, you know, it's just like, man, at our age to still be doing this, like we've already won for so long, you know, like you know we might not be worth millions of dollars but like we've lived uh, by our own code for so long yeah. you know just like you like it's that's pretty rare it's a beautiful thing i don't remember what i've done i've done with all the years i've got no one but myself to ask how did i get here and i worry all the time I love how I love how you've created this this really warm and inviting space in Budaland Studios. Can you can you just hit me with how that developed and and uh, I can, I really hoping that I can cut a record up there at some point. Oh my god, there's nothing I would love more. You know, <laughs> you're the greatest. I love you, and we would have fun. Oh yeah, and yeah, this is a sacred space, man. You know, like we, uh, I guess it was 2014, something like that. Um, you know, Zoe's was the club in Ventura uh, that existed for about 10 years and there were two iterations of it. And it was like, you know, sort of a counterpart to the Hotel Cafe or Room 5, but it was in Ventura. It was a proper listening room for acoustic artists, you know, and, and I found my people there. And so, you know, the original uh, uh, Zoe's, I played there many, many times, occasionally with my band, but often solo acoustic. And um and, you know, I did shows with like Grant Lee Phillips there. Um, you know, one of the highlights of my life was Bill Withers' daughter opened for me there. And then Bill mm. watched my show from the front row and he was so complimentary. He literally made me cry. <laughs> mm. But, you know, I played the last show in the first Zoe's. I played the first show in the second Zoe's and the last show in the second Zoe's. Mm. I was very connected with them. But they had a songwriting competition called Ones to Watch. And I was a judge for a couple of years. And it was me and Tara Kakoni and the late amazing Neil Casal, bunch of us, you know. And so one year, uh, uh, the 
the grand prize was Tarek Akoni. If you don't know Tarek Akoni, he's an amazing guitar player. He's Josh Groban's band leader, uh, big, tall African-American guitar god, uh, lives in Santa Barbara. And uh, so he was going to produce the winner. And so, but we tallied up our sheets and it's like, oh shit, we literally had a tie. And so I said, you know what, I'll produce Derek Jennings. And, um, and so Derek was this really neat sort of indie, again, sort of, you know, at that point, Fleet Foxes were maybe a blip on the radar for most people. But, you know, in that Elliot Smithy, Fleet Foxy, indie, folky, intimate, sensitive, amazing guitar. His, his right hand uh, finger picking and stuff is, I mean, it's like a drum set. His, he's, mm. his right hand is so amazing. And great tune, tunes, just like a super cool artist. So I just volunteered to produce him for free. And so at that point, you know, when we first moved into this house, my studio was the master bedroom. Then we had a daughter and eventually I said, all right, let's be grown ups." And my wife and I live in the master and, you know, we moved my daughter to the second biggest room. And then I took the tiny bedroom downstairs from my studio. So I produced Derek's record in our tiny bedroom studio downstairs. And at that point I had like a Demeter preamp, like a Digio one, like two microphones or something. And like literally, like I, I remember one thing I used like a, a, a Sharpie and a coffee cup uh, for percussion and it sounds awesome. You know? <laughs> but, so like I really wanted to make like this lo-fi like you would hear like a gun on cassette, you know, like uh -huh. super indie first record, you know, and it was such a great experience. and I love that kid. But, you know, my girls hated it, you know, him in our house and then their bathroom and, you know, and it's just like and then, you know, they'd come home from school or work and, you know, I would spend eight hours working on a tune, you know, literally in downstairs, you know, like it, and you know, my, my active altruism of offering to do this for free, you know, kind of yielded this space because they're like, you need your own space. This mm -hmm. is horrible mm -hmm. for us, you know? And so, uh, and, and also historically, you know, when I did records with my old producer, Billy and stuff like that, you know, he lived in Venice or Mar Vista or whatever. And so, yeah, I would be away for weeks and weeks and weeks working on my records. It's not months and months and months, you know, between recording and mixing and so much time away from home. And so we just started kicking around this idea of like, we, we started looking around the neighborhood to like a lateral move to a, a, a bigger house. You know, at that point, this house was 1400 square feet, three bedroom downstairs. And and so we looked and looked and looked, and then I, I, I believe it was my wife's idea to like, you know, well, let's just put on an, an addition, you know? And so we started wrapping our heads around that, and somehow, some crazy way, we just came to this conclusion, and we, we added a 1,000 square feet to my house, which, wow. you know, was a fortune. It was like buying another house in Southern California. It's got its own mm -hmm. air conditioning and heat and, you know, a full bath. Uh, you know all, all that stuff that was independent from downstairs so if they want the air conditioning on it's not going to come through my mics and vice versa you know mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so uh you know when, while we were doing it we we're like let's do it right you know let's make this place awesome and so you know like there's cork under the floors the walls have super duper insulation i, I wasn't able to do like floating wall you know air gaps because right. to make a room this big with air gaps would be almost essentially like building it twice um but still we've got a quiet rock, which is sheet rock, but has steel in it, you know, so one quiet rock equals four sheet rocks. So I have two uh, sh quiet rocks, which is like eight sheet rocks, plus like, you know, I think like the second best uh, sonic insulation you can get where they'll take this much insulation and squish it down to this. Huh. And then we have cork under the floor and stuff. So 
you know, I can have a full band up here rocking like gangbusters and my neighbors next door are home watching the news and completely oblivious, you know, huh. Huh. and my girls, even if we're doing drums up here, my girls can still be in the living room downstairs and watching TV. They'll hear it, but they're, they can still get on with their night. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, again, uh, all the credit in the world to my wife that we signed off on doing this together. You know, obviously the pressure is amazing because, yeah, it's like a giant mortgage. Um, but, you know, it was just like, you know, I'm a Buddhist. I named it Buddha land, you know, the, sort of like wherever the Buddha dwells, where your sort of enlightenment takes place, you know. And so the the impetus was just like a really beautiful, vibey space. And again, when we moved from Hollywood out out here to the 805, you know, most of my friends are like, oh, my God, you're, you've moved to the moon. You know, it's only like 35 right. miles, but it's, right, you know, right. they think that it's so far. And I thought, well, if I make something super rad and sexy, people will find a way, you know. And so uh, we did. And, and you know, together we had an amazing architect. Um, and, and but together, you know, we decorated it and, and, and tooled it and made made it exactly what it is. And, and you know, in hindsight, I'm so grateful for all of our choices, you know. Um, and so it's fully functional, you know. Um, I've put so much more money into my gear and my microphones and all of that stuff. And now, you know, I'm pretty full service. I can do full band here. I've done tons of full band records here. And, and um, you know, the main thing is that it feels comfortable and artists come in here and, mm-hmm. you know, some artists like get a little bit nervous or anxious to go into like a proper studio you know um mm-hmm, this mm-hmm. is just like a, a sexy home studio but it's right. you know this room is 32 feet across by 18 with a 16 foot ceiling and the it sounds great it feels lovely and then after hours when you know the, the mood lighting kicks in it goes to another <laughs> level um lava lamps on <laughs> but it's just you know in the pandemic yeah candles were like one of my biggest expenses <laughs> you know um but it's you know uh, again i i just i just try to think of it as like the sacred place where you know trying to make music to touch lots of people you know it's a weird world and like the impetus i, I you know like you said getting back to like do i tinker with my song so they're more syncable you know i just want to make beautiful music that feels honest you know like uh, i i for as a producer i want to bring the best of that artist i want that i don't want them to be something they're not i want to help figure out what their shiniest bit is and put a spotlight on that mm-hmm. and that gives me a lot of joy and i i didn't even realize it until i started doing it that you know uh, it's nice that not everything's about me you know and and i like being in this sort of supportive and mentoring role and, you know, it's, I, I just feel very, very blessed to be doing it. And again, I can work from home for 14 hours a day. And, you know, like, as I have this past year, I've worked so stinking hard and my wife will bring me some days like three meals a day up here, you know, and I, I, I put in a lot of time, but it's, you know, it feels like good work. And, and again, uh, I know how hard it is to be an artist. I know how hard it is to be an indie. And so whatever, teeny nugs of knowledge i might have i'm happy uh, to impart them to artists that are you know maybe not haven't done it as long as i have or whatever and and just try to help in any way i can because i've never been like competitive in that regard you know i know a lot of artists that are you know that are like constantly measuring against each other's stats or this you know i fuck that you know again all we can do as artists is be the best versions of ourselves you know and that's as, as people too but just like, you know, chasing something that you're not will is lead you to ruin, you know, it's just like, but to just try to figure out how to, how can I be my best me as an artist, as a writer, as a player, as a singer or whatever, 
that's the best we can hope for, you know? And so this place was created to make artists feel safe and comfortable and relaxed to really emote and, and make real music for, you know, like I said, the twilight of civilization. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that during the pandemic, you spent a lot of time in there. I mean, was that, yeah. was that how you stayed creative? Just having a space where you can go and. Yes. Uh, I definitely wrote out the pandemic in this very place, but you know, 2020 for all of us, like, you know, I was freaked out for sure. Uh, you know, I just thought, you know, again, first they came for the records. Now they've come for the touring, you know, like how on earth can a man survive in this industry, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my daughter was, uh, she had just started high school, uh, in the pandemic in 2020. And so she was doing school on zoom. So she would finish school at 10 40 AM. So, you know, in 2020, I, I like literally hung out with my kid and I read books. I played guitar every night, but I wasn't writing a lot. I, I just, I just like the muse had left the building or so I was telling myself, you know, and, um, I started a bunch of shit, but I wasn't finishing much. And I maybe wrote like one or two songs. I did write a song called, uh, 2020 vision, uh, which have, a lot of people did, uh, but, uh, in the wake of the George Floyd thing. And that was actually really good for me because I thought if I'm going to say this, like I got to do my due diligence. And I spent like three days straight on the lyric, you know, mm -hmm. like I really I'm like, if I'm and you know, again, Chris, one of my best friends, African-American, I, I sent it to him. I'm like, is it cool, you know, to do this? He's like, fuck yeah. You know, I said, okay. So that definitely kind of stoked me up a little bit to write. And like, again, like, you know, same with you, like words matter, every line, every, everything's got to be really there. So that reminded me that I do love that exercise. And and so I started leaning towards that. And then um, by the end of the year, Ted Russell Camp had written, reached out to me to write with him remotely. And I told you this the other day, I, I had dragged my feet on writing remotely because I put so much freaking money and effort into making this place. I didn't want to do it remotely, mm -hmm. but these mm -hmm. were different times, you know? And so he and I started to do that. And then, you know, we, we ended up writing every Thursday at 11 for months on Zoom, you know, and it was great. And so, you know, we wrote like 10 songs together that are, you know, he's got, uh, I've got songs, maybe his last three records or something. And my next new record, there'll be a song or two that I wrote with Ted. And so from that, I just started to like, you know, and also as a Buddhist, you know, it's just like the, the concept of Kosen Rufu is sort of the mission statement for a Buddhist. And that just means world peace through individual human revolution. And so for me as an artist, I, just much like Cat Stevens, you know, the idea that he uses his spirituality, he doesn't beat anybody over the head with it, but he, he puts a lot of beauty and intent behind his music. And I try to do the same. And so I thought as a writer, you know, starting to do these things on Zoom that I wanted to like reach out and reconnect with a lot of my friends sprinkled around the planet and write with them mm. in hopes of A, coming up with a nice song, but more importantly, to like leave them a little better than I found them because I knew so many of them were really on the ropes, not only financially, spiritually, mm -hmm. everything. I'm mm -hmm. 30, 40, 50. What the fuck am I doing with my life? I'm an artist in these times. It's terrifying. Right. You know? And so, but as I started to do that one or two a week, and then I got up to like four, then I got up to five a week for mm -hmm. months, you know? And, uh, and yeah, everybody feels better with a new song in their back pocket, you know? And so, so it really did. And I think, again, it, it started to create fortune in my life and career again. It just kind of got the blood pumping again, you know? 
And then like out of the clear blue, I got a Chevy commercial, like right when, you know, I had to get on unemployment as a grown ass man, you know, for the first time ever. And just right. as that was, you know, going away, I got a Chevy commercial, you know, wow. which was again, a huge benefit from the universe that I was so, so grateful for. And, and, and so again, I just wanted to help like lift up other artists any way I could. And so writing together and, you know, what we do often is like, we'll talk for an hour uh, and I'll be taking notes the whole time, you know, and just like, you know, they put three words together that are interesting. It's like, oh, maybe that's a line. And, you know, just organically, you know, 99% of them bore fruit with great songs and a lot of friends lost parents or whatever. And we wrote songs about those, you know, I wrote with my dear friend, Justine Bennett. Uh, we wrote a song for her father who was literally on his deathbed in like Ecuador. Um, uh, uh, and we wrote this beautiful song and the, the whole impetus of it, you know, it was, it basically was like, it's all right. I'll, I'll be fine. It's called, I'll be fine. It's like, you, you, know, you can go now. I'll be fine. Hmm. You know, it's so, so special. And I said, Justine, you, you got to send it to your dad, man. You know, Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm like, are you kidding me? We literally spent a whole day, you know, dotting our eyes to make this beautiful sentiment, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I was like, I was freaking out that she wouldn't send it down there. You know, literally he's on his deathbed with his wife who doesn't speak English, you know, they're in the jungle. It was Peru, the jungles of Peru. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, like two days later, she called me. She's like, I just want to let you know that my father passed away, but, but I did uh, uh, send the song down and he, he heard it and they listened to it for a few hours and he passed away, mm -hmm. you know? And again, like I just, that was profound to be involved in that. And, and, you know, just like, again, using our powers for good, it's not financial, it's not anything. It's just like, we're trying to make a beautiful song that might touch somebody. If the bread comes in, that's totally fine. But you know, it's just like, I just want to make real music that touches people's hearts and then let the rest sort of chips fall with where they may. Mm -hmm. you know? What, uh, what does the rest of the year look like for you? <sighs> Well, there's a lot going on, babe. Uh, so, so yeah. So since October, um, I've been literally in this chair. Um, uh, again, last summer, uh, Warner Chapel hooked me up with this artist named Senya Sargent from Holland. She's Canadian, but she's living in Amsterdam now, four years or something. And she was on The Voice last year, so they put us together to write. And uh, on our very first Zoom, I was just absolutely knocked out by her. And so we did an EP remotely together. I produced it here, the music here. I produced her vocals remotely, and then I've been working on it uh, for months. Uh, so her record comes out, uh, her, her second single comes out the 19th of August, which is next week, next Friday. Um, and then we have a record release show in Amsterdam September 21st at Bitter Zoot. So for me, I'm going overseas for the first time in three years, September wow. 17th. And uh, I'm going to do a handful of shows in Holland, and I got one over in Germany. Um, then uh, I'm home for like two weeks. I have one little Arizona trip. Um, we'll have to talk about that as well. Yeah, come in, on. in uh, early October. Then uh, late October, I'm going to do a little East Coast run from Pittsburgh up to Maine. Um, and then aside from that, uh, I finished Senya's record. Gustavo Galindo's record is done, and I'm working with his mixer, Leggy Langdon, now getting that mixed. Ariel Silver, I produced her previous record. I'm producing her record now. It's about 90% cooked. I'm actually going to work on that more today. Uh, then my eighth solo record is about 79% cooked. Wow. And so with my paying clients, they've been cutting in line, but my record's sitting there and it's super vibey and cool. And again, like 
genreless. You know, there's some folky songs, but there's some like epic five minute like statement songs that are really, really beautiful. And and you know, they're takes with my guys. Like it's real music. Like like we got to take. You know, and so. You know, I'm really where so many of my friends that are producers are going the opposite where they, you know, they use library music and samples and all this. And it sounds like the gods, you know, I'm I'm doing it the opposite. I want to, like, make music with human beings here that bring their story and their influences to the table and like the magic happens in the room. And so that helps our ecosystem as working musicians and paying session guys and my guys and singers and and again, like we're together, you know, it's one thing to work remotely with somebody that's on another country, but you know, if you have your druthers, like to be in the room when the moments happen is that's what gives me joy. For sure. I don't want you to send me the files, you know? Right. right. Um, so yeah, so my record is really neat. I, I do think I'll probably end up maybe just like sawing off singles for mm -hmm. my stuff. Uh, so I, I'm thinking, you know, first quarter, I'll probably put out my eighth solo record. And, you know, again, I have a bunch of other artists that I've been writing with and so there's a few of those coming up in the early new year to work on other records and you know in the in the meantime again I need to be playing more shows with my guys uh you know I've been remiss in my life performance duties just mm -hmm. because I've been so in studio mode uh but yeah yeah I just I just plan to be working really hard for the foreseeable <laughs> future um, but yeah again I wouldn't dare complain right well it it really is awesome uh, to see you in, in the chat and um, you've always been uh, a source of inspiration for me, how you've kind of handled your biz and you get out there. And I mean, I, when I think about that tour, even though there were some fairly dark moments, I still just laugh it, we just yeah. had a fucking ball. And, yeah. and I think that what you do really, you handle your business, but you also know, ultimately at the end of the day, this is about having fun and connecting with people and and i and i love the fact that you say that you know building relationships is very important in this business and the way you know and it, and it takes effort to maintain those relationships but it's so rewarding yeah. uh you know after 10 years to to have to have these connections and so anyway i'm i'm, I'm a big fan of your music really proud of of what you have done and continue to do and and you know maybe maybe you're not performing as much as you would like but you know you're you're filling the space with creative and important things and and i think that that will find that natural equilibrium between playing and producing and touring and you know but you got to wear all the hats and i agree there's not one of those hats that that i would throw away so um thank you for uh your time today and uh getting to pull the curtain back a little bit uh and um Hope that we get to hang soon, and I hope that I get to come up and do a tune uh, in Boodaland. Yeah, man, let's just make that happen. And again, I have to say, throw it right back to you, bud. You know, uh, when we met, it, it, same thing. Like you had the hustle already in in play. You know, it was the band, but you were sort of driving the tour and making sure everything was. Uh, you know, you were the one guy in our party that spoke German, for God's sakes, which <laughs> got us out of jail a few times, and. Um, you know, and, and you've done amazing things with the band and on your own since. And and that's how you're still able to keep the chimney smoking as an independent, yeah. you know, guy. And again, you make music that that is important. It's beautiful. It's reached millions and millions of people. And for independent artists to do that, that's that's really rare. 
Um, and it's because your stuff is so beautiful and, and, and your voice is so great and your guitar playing is so great and your standard is so high. And it's because you're a lovely human and, you know, sort of like attracts like. And so same thing. You've made all these relationships. And, you know, for us out there working musicians, you see like how we overlap our circles overlap out there in the field, even in Europe or whatever. You know, people that are out really doing the thing and busting their ass, they have a way of finding each other, mm-hmm. you know. And and so, you know, all we need to do is, you know, take care of ourselves and keep swinging and keep doing what we're doing. <laughs> all right, Shane, appreciate you, man. I will, be, I will be in touch soon. Thanks for having me. All right, brother. <laughs>